CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Take it away, Benny J. It's bonus time in the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's October 3rd. 2019 took me a while to conjure up that date uh and but of course you can listen to it anytime in the universe i just like to always state the date uh, to help you position yourself uh in the world and as we always do in bonus time we ask our distinguished guest to introduce him or herself distinguished guests introduce yourself uh ben my name is jim coogan i'm a trial lawyer and a person who's presently trying to take shelter from the news barrage of <laughs> october 3rd and every second of the day basically That's correct that is correct thank you mr muller uh jim coogan from dwyer and coogan is a regular on this show uh has been a regular on this show for many times trying to explain the inexplicable uh <laughs> in terms that people can understand and we've sort of, uh, in terms of these bonus segments, turned it into, or I've turned it into, hey, Jim, how is this How is this possibly legal? Uh, and we went through, uh, we took a deep dive last time on Donald Trump trying to shield his uh, taxes. Folks can listen to that download. It was about three or four weeks ago. Uh, it is uh, in, at the end of August. I think we did there, beginning of September, whatever. Uh, and now, of course, the whole world has been engulfed in what I call whistleblower gate, the story that broke last week. It's only... You know, Jim, it's only been a week, but it seems like it's been around forever. And uh, we'll get into the details of this, of course, Donald Trump's conversation with the president of Ukraine. How is this legal whistleblower gate? Let's just, I've broken it down into about four, four or five different sections here. We'll take them one point by point, starting with how is this legal? quote unquote, extorting uh, information from Ukraine in exchange for military aid. Talk about this, the actual phone conversation that took place between Donald Trump and the president of Ukraine. Short answer, it's not supposed to be. Um, We have, this is remarkable, just in the sense of how much we have real-time information while we're still in the wake of the story, while it's happening, while... Uh, the investigation has barely even begun, but information has come out ahead of time. I don't, I still actually am kind of curious as to how that has come about. I believe that in some sense, the White House has tried to get ahead of this story by pushing forth the, uh, what do they call this? A telcon. That's the, that's the, it's not a transcript of the conversation between the Ukrainian president and Donald Trump, but rather it's a summary of the trans of the conversation based upon notes and the audio, and I think note takers who are listening to it live, there's a process that they go through for this. Um, but that's been out for a week and a half already. Uh, basically, as soon as we, the story exploded from Adam Schiff raising questions about why a whistleblower complaint that he became aware of was being stifled or, or being withheld, then suddenly we've got uh, the, depart- the acting 
director of national intelligence testifying about that earlier this week. That was just a couple of days ago. It feels like it was about a month ago already. <laughs> and at the time the transcript came out the day before, so you could read it, or the telecon came out the day before, so you can actually read what that summary consisted of. Um, so your initial question was how is it legal for the American president to be leveraging our position? I think the important thing that folks especially if it's trying to be spun in a, in a nefarious way, have do not engage in when it comes to this story is the context of this. You've got a, a country that is in a very tenuous position with Ukraine. Russia historically sees Ukraine as part of that country. Vladimir Putin believes very strongly that he has the right to take over all of Ukraine. They have annexed part of Ukraine. They have been engaged in a hot war, an actual violent war, you know, the United States locally press, we don't usually pay attention to that kind of thing because obviously there's skirmishes all over the globe. Not everybody's engaged in all of it, but there's people dying in a war right now. So Ukraine is in an extremely vulnerable position in their own security state, very dependent position on the United States, European Union, NATO for military aid and financial aid because they're also not a very wealthy nation. So the context of this conversation is the president, one of the few things that I think he does understand well is when he's got leverage over somebody. So whether or not he understands that broader context or has any concept of the history behind the conflict certainly knows that this guy needs something from me. So going into that conversation, like you, ha you can't just pretend like this is just devoid of context and they just happen to have this bubbly conversation congratu congratulating each other for being so wonderful <laughs> and then just kind of saying, oh, by the way, can you do me a favor? No, he knows when he's making an ask, if he makes an ask, even if, even if Zelensky hadn't actually said anything about uh, those missiles the, or the Javelin anti-tank missiles that they use, even if he hadn't brought it up, it would have been very clear to him and to any honest listener that any favor that Trump asks for is being brought up in the context of them continuing to get America's aid because they need that to defend themselves from Russia completely taking over the country. So how is this different, this conversation between Trump and the Ukrainian president, where Trump says, we've done favors for you. He, he starts off the conversation by saying, we've done favors for you. As you know, we've done favors for you. Mm -hmm. And then, or we've done things for you, I believe is what he says. And then he says, I need a favor. And so how is that different? In than a, just regular diplomacy? Well, no, I was going to say, than what Rod Blagojevich is oh. in prison for, <laughs> uh, where he's telling, and he wasn't even Rod Blagojevich, it was agents of Rod Blagojevich saying things like, I know you want this Senate seat appoint, appointment. We can do things for you. You can do things for us. Why, why is one obviously illegal to the point where he was immediately uh, impeached and now spending 14 years in prison? And this is, as the Tribune says, what did they say? It's wrong, but we don't know. It's not explicit. So we don't know. For so explain to me from a legal standpoint the difference between uh, Rod Blagojevich's crimes and what Donald Trump did. I, I don't know. I don't sincerely think there is any difference. Um, I would say it is analogous to Blagojevich in the sense that Donald Trump is using public power, the public trust, taxpayer money, and power that is bestowed upon him through his office, and he's leveraging it to get gain that is for him 
personally. I mean, obviously, so, and I, I, t- this is also to distinguish it from genuine, legitimate foreign policy discussions that are had with uh, a counterparty leader like the president of Ukraine. If the, if the White House were to say to them, or if the president was to say, well, we do think you need this defense. We understand how important javelins are to be able to defend yourselves because they've got all these different military characteristics. And we also think it's really important that you continue to stand up for NATO and, uh, you know, make sure that you play nice with, with France and with Germany and with our other allies because we all need to stand together against the, the scourge of, of Russian imperialism. That would be a conversation that there's nothing wrong with. That would actually be what the president has gone around using this word. It's a perfect call. That would be a perfectly normal <laughs> yeah. uh, discussion between two leaders. But this is not. This is to get something that is for him personally, for his personal, A, vendetta, I think, against anybody who's ever questioned him, and B, the broader idea of supporting his campaign to be reelected. That is not in the interest of the United States. That is in Donald Trump's 2020 campaign's interests. So what law... All right. So you're saying that it's analogous to what uh, Rod Bogoyevich, uh well, he didn't do it again, but people did on his behalf uh, to essentially tr- swap something that he, Rod Bogoyevich, controlled an appointment to, uh, to a Senate seat or a license to operate a hot or to expand the hospital uh, or whatever else there was. I can't remember at the moment to swap something that he controls in exchange for money. Uh, contributions, not mm-hmm. even money in his pocket, political contributions. Right. All right. So in this instance, uh, Donald Trump is swapping money that uh, he controls. It's our tax dollars, but he controls the Correct. purse strings Correct. Uh, in exchange for dirt on Joe Biden. And uh, so what law has been violated there? It's extortion. Straight up. It's a shakedown. I mean, it's a shakedown using, again, a thing of value that he has the power over in his public office and he's doing it explicitly to get something that's going to help him personally. So it's just, it's straight up extortion. Now that's what I thought. That's what I think I'm going to put it in the uh, present tense. Uh, I, I feel th- the evidence we have already warrants prosecution and now, but every day I, I hear as we get further and further from the release of the, um, uh, the transcript in quotes, not mm-hmm. really a transcript. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more concern about whether, well, we shouldn't go too far, too fast. We have to get all our facts together. So what in the world do we need in addition to what all we already have to make a case uh, of extortion against Donald Trump? Uh, well, he he's actually spent the day, today, October 3rd, <laughs> going around on camera and offering more evidence of what, how willing he is to extort other countries with whom we have bilateral trade deals and uh, military alliances with because he's now calling on China to investigate Joe Biden as well. And also Ukraine, I, those were his words today on camera. I assume in a couple hours he'll say it's fake news and that he never said it. Um, and he certainly would testify to that if he was on an impeachment trial. But um, I think that the what you're also what you're getting at is there is there has got to be a, a more of a sense of urgency with this investigation and the process than there has been for the last nine months. I don't know if that's, if all of that can fall at the feet of Democrats in the House as some sort of a failure to not move fast enough with 
Like mm-hmm. the the I mean the Mueller report was that was an, a thing that they did not have control over. They could only use it to the extent that whenever it was complete and released, perhaps to get testimony from Mueller or other witnesses. But this is purely a house investigation. So what else do they need or should they need? I don't know that there's much. I suspect that the the drafting of the actual document of the articles of impeachment is on somebody's, mm. you know, it's on a server somewhere. It's in a word document. They're already out. They're already outlined. It's just a question of when does somebody feel like they can move forward with it? And part of the answer to that question is this is not a typical legal proceeding. This is not where you have a, a Department of Justice attorney who's tried 100 terrorism cases and he knows exactly what he needs to start. There have not been very many. I think there's only been one, well, two, two trials in this country's history in front of the Senate for this, Uh, for the president. There's been other impeachment trials, but for the president. For the president, yeah. Well, it seems to me with the, uh, what you're just talking about, the breaking news today that Donald Trump has been holding press conferences or telling reporters at the White House uh, that, for instance, he was... uh, uh, talking, asking China to help him dig up dirt on Biden. He's obsessed with Biden. His obsession with Biden is is really uh, revealing in many ways. But we'll put that to the side for the moment. Uh, it seems to me that he's gearing up to make an argument uh, that it's it's not extortion. It's now acceptable practice and behavior, and that what struck everybody when they first saw it. Um, that, oh my God, this is a shakedown is now being turned into, no, this is the way you do business. This is the way you conduct, conduct diplomacy. This is the way you get things. Uh, and so, uh, again, if I were a Rob Bogoyevich, I'd be asking immediately to be let out of, of jail prison right now. Cause I don't see a distinction. Uh, but do you think that that has any, uh, merit as an argument, uh, in a court of law? The notion that, well, no, this is extortion is an acceptable behavior of a president. I, I fully believe that that would be an argument that would be made on his behalf, that this is not extortion, but rather this is diplomacy. It is seeking to further the interests of the United States. I mean, this is the public argument that they're making now, that this is about rooting out corruption, because we all know, if anything, Donald Trump has always been a crusader against <laughs> Corrupt practices, whether yeah. it be in a boardroom or at the White House yeah. uh, dinner table, um, <laughs> that's that's their public argument already. So yeah. there's no doubt that they would make it. I don't agree with it, and I think it is, I think it's completely fallacious in this situation. It's it's obviously false that this is not to further the, the country's interests, but they're going to try to characterize it as such. That's their plan. And so your other question about normalizing this. Ultimately, I don't think that Donald Trump, this is a personal opinion, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't think that he has like some conscious plan to go around the world trying to normalize his own personal behavior. I think what he has inside his head is he just always thinks he's right and he's always been right. And nothing has really proven him wrong in his life. Nothing's gotten in the way because of the cushy feather bed upon which he was born and then perpetuated his existence through. I mean, nothing's really stopped him so far. So why wouldn't he believe that? You know, yeah. there's nothing, there's never been a genuine reality check. So he's not, it's not like this is a deliberate strategy on his part, but it is, he just doesn't care whether anybody else thinks it's right because he's already convinced himself that it's true. All right. So to have lawyers go make that argument on his behalf, yeah. he would, 
fire him until he found the one who will do it. Well, it probably has one in Giuliani. We'll get to him later. Uh, all right. So you talk about how Donald Trump has a sense of entitlement in the world uh, that he's never wrong. He's always right. And he can he, he, he can forward any argument, no matter how uh Obviously bogus it is, uh, because if he's articulating it, then it must be right. That's sort of his governing principle. Not everybody around him as the beneficiary of the the same sense of entitlement. Uh, So let's go through some of the people who have already been implicated uh, in uh, this, uh, I call it a scandal. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, for instance, um, immediately uh, there was discussion. The issue was how much he knew and when did he know it. At first, he was suggesting he didn't know anything at all. Now he's admitting that he was on listening on the phone calls. So already that's evolved as an explanation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess they're gearing up uh, to make the argument that it was acceptable practice. And so that's why it was okay for him to be listening on the call and not having blown the whistle himself. Sure. Um, where do you think he's going with his legal strategy to try to uh, save his neck? Or do you think he's going to end up like Michael Cohen, the lawyer? It's like we always we, we did a whole show on Michael Cohen at least twice. Michael Cohen's now in federal prison. I like to remind people. He probably says, why am I in federal prison? Uh, so what do you think Papeo's going to do to save his neck? Well, I, I suspect that this is from start to finish. Beyond the fact that he initially pretended like he didn't understand what I think it was uh, Martha Raddatz was asking him on ABC about the report itself. Mm-hmm. You're just at, he had this confused look on his face like you're just asking me about a report I just found out about. And then subsequently he's telling reporters he hadn't read it yet. Um, he will say that those aren't actually inconsistent answers because he's they didn't ask him directly about were you on the call, but they were asking about what did the whistleblower say. So there's one thing to be just a one of those lawyer legalistic distinctions that makes people want to pull their hair out. Yeah. But, um, besides that, I think he's going to make some kind of claim that he doesn't have any sort of whistleblower responsibility because he didn't see this as a, an abuse of Trump's power. That even though he was participating in the call, he, I mean, because there's going to be more context to this. That call happened in July. There were pre call conversations that would have happened between emissaries from the Ukraine and people from the White House, presumably part of the State Department. So, the bigger question is going to be what what else did he know and at what point in time even before this call happened and how much, how many conversations was he involved in with Rudy Giuliani about this strategy? To, that this was one of their primary keep America great strategies for 2020 in, I don't know, April, March, February. It's uh, that that's the rest of the stuff that we don't even have an idea about just yet. But I would imagine a central pillar in whatever he's going to say is these are the president's decisions. He's got the right to conduct foreign policy under article two of the constitution. I serve at his pleasure. I didn't see anything specifically wrong about what they were doing here. And I 100% agree that we're trying to root out corruption, whether it's at home or abroad. So I was, I'm fully supportive of the president's efforts. Maybe, you know, some nonsense about how, well, it might be unorthodox, but he's the kind of guy who gets things done. I mean, these are the kind of ridiculous selling points that they've been making since he started running for president. So if they're sort of openly acknowledging that they did uh, what they first were reluctant to admit that they did, which is to uh, 
to either extort or leverage. You could use either word. I noticed you used the word leverage at one point. So either extort or leverage information. Intel and Joe Biden from foreign country, if they're, if they're uh, willing to acknowledge that they did it and there's nothing wrong with it, then are there any documents? Why shouldn't they just turn over all the documents? Everything that the congressional investigators ask for. If they believe they did nothing wrong, why not turn over absolutely everything? <laughs> That's a really good question from a reporter. That's a good journalist <laughs> yeah. question. Uh, the answer would be executive privilege, and we don't have to turn over Jack. So, uh, you know, this is this is part of internal deliberations. I'm one of the president's senior advisors. I'm not obligated to show you anything. That's I don't think that's a fair point. I don't think that's a reasonable response, but that's definitely what they're going to say. So in other words, they will be defending the right of the executive branch not to have to turn over information to the legislative branch, even at the same time they're saying that the information that the legislative branch is seeking would uh, prove their innocence. You know, history rhymes a lot, right? Take, take yourself back to the questions about torture being implemented by the George W. Bush administration. They didn't turn over all the information, but they had John Yu putting out memos to talk about why it was legal. And they said, and they pushed out different officials to try to say that we got all kinds of information from this, that waterboarding people is a completely legitimate practice, but still hid behind executive privilege about any number of aspects of how they actually carried it out. And of course, in that situation, that wasn't just executive privilege, but also top secret, high level clearance stuff. So, you know, of course we can't turn over any of this, but everything we did was in the right. service of this country. Yeah, that's what No I matter think. who we killed in the process or, or whether we did it in an inhumane way, in my opinion, otherwise tarnishing what, what could be a sterling reputation for this great country. So in other words, that's, and, and no offense meant, that's why you hire lawyers to advance arguments that uh, defend what you're doing while, uh, what, defending, protecting you from investigation for what you're doing. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's, you can invoke the concept of due process, and that's always useful when the audience doesn't exactly know what that means, but yeah. they think, yeah, yeah, due process. <laughs> I'm, on this, I'm on this president's side anyway, so I'll just yell about due process. Um, yeah. But there's no doubt about that, because I suppose in one other sense, there is a, there's supposed to be a fundamental right, or we have enshrined it in our Bill of Rights, whether or not we apply it equally or fairly or correctly. The point would be that there, there can be a somewhat disjointed position about, well, I don't need to show you all my cards, but I get to advance a defense about mm -hmm. what I've been doing. Uh, all right. Now, speaking of other information that they may want to withhold, uh, you, you talked about the transcripts that are not really transcript. Apparently, all phone calls that the president makes to foreign leaders are processed this way uh, that we have these transcripts. I, I think that somewhere in the where in the world there are like real transcripts, but we don't get to see them. We see these modified versions, but whatever. Whether there's just modified versions, actual transcripts, or the recordings themselves, mm -hmm. they exist in the real world. I don't know if you saw this. I took great delight in this. Officials from Russia uh, when 
when it was leaked, when, when reporters suggested that the, the investigators might come after transcripts of conversations between Putin and Trump, immediately said, I don't know if you saw this, they immediately said that would be a violation of all uh, normal behavior that we've learned from our mothers. Our mothers have always taught us not to listen to other people's conversations. I don't know if you saw that. And, and I just took great delight at since all this began with Russian hackers of, by Putin, hacking into computers of the Democratic National Committee, stealing their internal emails and putting them on the Internet for the whole world to see, just hitting a fight between Sanders and Hillary Clinton that exists to this day, right? Okay, working to Trump's benefit to this day. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyway, so uh, what would your uh, what's your sense about should the Democrats go after these other conversations? Well, the interesting development was part of the whistleblowers complaint was that they were inappropriate handling the more thorough quote-unquote transcripts like something that's not just a summary like this telcon is supposed to be but rather actual transcripts that they were inappropriately utilizing special top secret clearance servers to save these documents presumably so there would be less eyes that would have access to them within the government and then they came out and admitted that that's what they did. There was an article from like this Tuesday saying that they admit that that's exactly what they were doing. But the problem is, I, I don't understand if they've actually asserted that that those transcripts actually belong there beyond the just craven notion of trying to protect Donald Trump politically. Um, so I, I think that that's absolutely um, evidence of guilt or or behavior of a guilty party trying to hide these things that they're whatever else he's been saying is either more of the same or god knows what could be worse never know mm-hmm. i mean it's not as if you can put a, a a reasonable betting limit on like anything the guy could ever say i mean try handicapping what might come out <laughs> in a conversation with this guy good luck um and but yeah i mean the other thing that that beyond russia having the gall to say, well, you internally in your own country shouldn't release these transcripts or publicize them within your country because we're on them. And that would just be so violative. I'm sure Russia was listening in on his conversations with Ukraine or who knows which other people. I mean, the the various mechanisms through which they surveil, particularly this president who has complete disregard for the norms of <laughs> of top secret information yeah, and protecting national yeah, security secrets yeah. um i i assume i mean who knows if that played a role into this telcon being released because not only would was trump worried about people within his own government realizing what he'd said or his he may not care but somebody around him would realize the significance but that they'd be subject to other countries saying you know it'd be a shame if cnn were to find out what you said so maybe you should scale back on whatever and not not like anybody would hesitate for a second to leverage him yeah yeah so i mean i'm that's the other aspect to it is i'm sure that that beyond the direct conversations with putin which i'm sure there are transcripts of uh they've the other countries including probably israel Probably the Russians have access to uh, recordings of things that he's said and admitted to. Yeah, it's pretty funny. And by the way, uh, as a, uh, I've been in this business for a long time, I love a transparency. I welcome 
the release of more of these documents. I, I, the one part about this that I like that Trump's doing is that he's releasing, well, he released the, the quote-unquote transcript, I give him credit for that, and the whistleblower report. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the more the merrier. I can't wait to read the Putin transcripts and see what <laughs> those conversations are like. Careful uh, what you wish for. Well, careful what you wish for, and I, that might be the one they fight. Because that may get to the heart of, and we've talked about this so much, Jim, over the years. Why Trump has this, uh, this, 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 this very um, passive attitude toward Putin, this very tolerant attitude toward him, and uh, we've talked about this many times. So maybe those transcripts have uh, give us insights into that. Uh, and so he's going to fight to keep those kept secret, like he's fighting to keep, let's say, his income tax statements. Mm-hmm. Secret. Well, and, and you know, to, to dovetail off that, even in this particular summary, the completely, or not, I don't know if it was in this or it was actually, it was in the White House when he had the meeting where they pull, pulled poor Zelensky in like a hostage to, yes. to make him oh to make God. him testify in front of the yeah. cameras that he wasn't coerced. Yeah. And Trump has the gall to say to him, well, you know, after all this, you and you and Vladimir ought to go work this out. They came in and invaded the guy's country, uh, yeah. and he's kind of patting him on the on the butt and sending him out the door, like you know, go talk to my buddy Vlad. He's he's the most reasonable guy in the world. This is probably you know just a misunderstanding. It's just it's just absurd. All right, so now let's get to a, a, another uh, Trump official who's up to his eyeballs in this, and that of course is Attorney General William Barr. Uh, What's his role in all this, and how is it appropriate that our chief law enforcement officer uh, is somehow or other seems to be digging up dirt to benefit the president uh, at the expense of his Democratic rival? Well, from on its face, from what we can see out here right now, what you have is a very suspicious situation in just on the outset. Based on the conversation that we know of between Trump and Zelensky, here he is saying well, you should talk to my attorney general, but also my personal attorney. Mm-hmm. This is not how normal diplomacy is done. If there was a legitimate investigation to be done into any American, well, by the way, forget about whether or not Biden might be running against him as president. He's a fellow American citizen. You're selling him out to <laughs> potentially, I don't know what, you know, get him in trouble in Ukraine. And then maybe that turns into something somewhere else. You're the president. You're supposed to actually care about the, the safety and security of the people who are in your country. Whether you like Joe Biden or not, he's a citizen of the United States. So that's, of course, forgotten in all this. Oh, but, yeah. um, you know, if they're the, the predicate for legitimate investigations at the Department of Justice is supposed to be we have information and now we have to proceed with an investigation. It's not supposed to be this guy is the what I perceive to be the most viable Democrat candidate to run against me in a year and a half or a basically a year now. And so somebody go find something on him. And it's almost like an admission that they couldn't do it legitimately when instead of doing it within the apparatus of his own uh, Department of Justice, where all bets are off, Mm -hmm. all the independence that William Barr is supposed to have, he does not have. So, I mean, it's not like if Trump went and told him, go investigate Biden, like he wouldn't just do it. So it's so illegitimate that they have to go hide this activity and do it in a different country. Because otherwise... If you had an actual legitimate investigation, like, for example, an American company violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, that they were doing some, something abroad that was illegal, bribing officials in another country, you can have that prosecution right here in the United States. They do it all the time. It might require 
cooperation with the foreign officials in that country to actually provide some of the predicate factual material, documentation, wire transfers, whatever you can get from their banking system. I don't know, the actual company's records, who they were doing business with. But you don't do it through these weird, covert, secret channels unless, of course, what you're doing is illegal. But, and then and you're somehow involving, you know, wacky, you know, super agent Rudy Giuliani, who's like this free agent in the whole process, who sometimes he claims that he was acting in, in defense of his client. Other times he says he wasn't, which is completely confusing. But don't listen to him for more than 10 minutes or he'll, he'll, you know, you'll tie your brain up in knots in general. Um, both of those names pop up in the Zelensky summary, and he's urging the officials on the Ukraine side to talk to each of them. Like, because they each have individual roles, they're trying to divide the responsibilities, keep certain things off the books because then Rudy can carry them around in his attache case. It's very, like, it, it just, it's completely improper. Yeah. I, uh, there are some uh, parallels to what went down in Watergate where John Mitchell was the attorney general for Nixon, uh, and he was overseeing the conspiracy, the cover-up. I don't know if, how much you follow Watergate, but he was very much involved. Uh, and he ultimately uh, pled guilty. I don't know if he pled guilty, but he was found guilty, and he went to jail. And uh, so I don't know where Barr is in all this, but he's far, and far as I'm concerned, he's far too... Uh, closely involved in the machinations that Trump is doing. Uh, and I, I can't remember if it was you that suggested this in a conversation. It, may, it probably was you, or maybe it was Monroe Anderson talking about impeaching Barr. Uh, it just seems like the Democrats have so much under a plate dealing with Trump. I, agreed. I, I threw it out there back in, I don't know, it was April or May or yeah. something like that, one of the earlier shows that we had here at the new show, because at the time his other conduct was so reprehensible and he has completely disregarded the normal uh, apparatus that you're supposed to have, the normal distance, independence, and legitimacy that an attorney general is supposed to have because it is a special branch of the executive branch. Because it's a, this is a, it's supposed to be a democracy. You can't have the president telling a chief prosecutor what to do and specifically to go after his political enemies. That is the work of banana republics. That's authoritarianism right on its face. So that's there's supposed to be a wall, even if it's a semi-permeable wall between the two. And they've completely eroded it. So his actions surrounding the way that he released the Mueller report were already completely improper. Um, and he's he, his cagey responses about he, you know there's a famous clip of of Senator Kamala Harris asking him whether he's been directed to go investigate someone at the behest of Trump. He doesn't understand what the word means yeah. and these cagey ridiculous answers. I mean, these are the kind of things that you can look at and say, no, I judge this person to be not credible. Can't uh, let him get away with that. By the way, there's always the possibility that. Donald Trump has lost his mind. I'm becoming more and more convinced of that. After watching yesterday's press conference, I think it was yesterday with the, the president from Finland. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, I feel bad for that guy. He, you know, whatever he, whatever good he wanted to do in Finland, he didn't sign up for, <laughs> for going over and, and shooting hostage videos with the president of the United States. Oh my God, but the behavior... <laughs> You're right. And he's looking around like, why are you dragging me into this? You see the the hand gesture when he when he slapped him on the knee, when Trump slapped him on yeah, the knee? Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
he's violating his personal space. Yeah, for God's you know, well, he, he's, he's been known to do that. Clearly, very uncomfortable. Uh, no, but I, I'm starting to think that Donald Trump has really lost it, and everybody's scrambling uh, to keep up with him. All right, let's get to Rudy Giuliani, of course, the former mayor of New York City, who is uh, Trump's personal lawyer who also comes across as a total lunatic. Uh, <laughs> he goes on a talk show on a Sunday, uh, Jim, and he'll s- f- start by saying, uh, "I yes, we did X, Y, Z, and here's why. And then before the talk show is over, he's denying what that he did what he said he did. I mean, it's just the man's behavior is uh, very peculiar, to say the least. Uh, <laughs> so... How is anything he's done to this stage legal? He's not an official actor of the United States government. He's not an employee of the government. He's not a State Department official. And yet he's roaming around the world making all these deals with these uh, foreign leaders and trying to get information for them. How is this legal? Um, yeah, I mean, we, we even, I think at one point we talked about the Logan Act back at the beginning oh, of this yes. because it was a wow. question of whether yes. the foreign policy that was being conducted by Michael Flynn during the transition was illegal by an act that's, it's been on the books for like 230 years, but it's never really been what used. What a memory just, you have. The Logan <laughs> Act. <I remember. laughs> well, it's, I mean, that's, that's a big one. Everybody knows about the Logan yeah. Act. Um, it, it's it, his... His other behaviors, it's almost like maybe when he was a prosecutor, he was jealous of defense attorneys that could go around and just, maybe he had this theory like, well, it's so easy to be a defense attorney because all you have to do is just confuse the heck out of everybody so badly that by the end of it, they can't figure out whether the person should be guilty anymore. Like, like it's just some sort of a game and you just just babble on for 15 minutes, throwing out a few buzzwords. <laughs> and you throw in a uranium one somewhere, yeah. maybe a maybe a Biden comment, and maybe something about Hillary's emails. And five minutes later, you've come up with an answer. Um, yeah. But it's no, it's disturbing on the level that here's a guy who's in a position of high trust with this president, who doesn't trust a lot of people and certainly does not value the counsel of many people. He calls around, you know, he's constantly asking people for advice, but I suspect he's the kind of guy who disregards 80 to 90% of it. You talk about Trump. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. but he trusts Giuliani. And Giuliani has taken that and, and found himself in a position of power, which he goes around and like you said, an objective observer would have trouble understanding what the purpose of anything that he's doing here is. Mm-hmm. I mean, had he not opened his mouth about a lot of these things or even done some of the stuff that he'd done, because I'm sure he's the one who goaded Trump into being in, into thinking that Ukraine was the place to search for this information. Had that not happened, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I mean, it would we'd be stuck at, well, gee, the Mueller report was kind of a flop and the Democrats couldn't really get it together in the House. All of a sudden, it's like the articles of impeachment are writing themselves. Like, is he doing this on purpose? It's 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 very bizarre. Well, what about is there any is he liable for any prosecution? Could he be held accountable for his behavior? He's not acting in an official capacity. So if this is if this outside of the the part of this where one of the co-conspirators is Donald Trump, mm-hmm. if this is considered to be a conspiracy to extort Ukraine, then absolutely, he's obviously part of it. He's the one who's facilitating most of it. He's running around with documents with like White House logos that he made up and slapped them on the side. I mean, so yes, there's no question that if to the extent that this or any of the other, I assume there's more that he's been facilitating Mm -hmm. that are like this, he would absolutely be subject to prosecution because he's just a guy. Now he's going to say, I'm doing it as as an attorney. And so somehow 
you know, that's protected and I'm just investigating something on behalf of my client. Well, his client isn't being charged with anything. So doing something that otherwise would be a crime isn't protected just because you're saying you're doing it for a client. They call it, there's other, there's a thing called the crime fraud exception. You know, you can't, you can't just be a part of like knowing about a conspiracy because they were consulting with you about it. At some point you become one of the conspirators. Yeah. We talked about that was Michael Cohen. Uh, Michael Cohen had some of the same problems. And of course, Michael Cohen, as I said before, isn't a federal prison or as we speak, just hiding behind the attorney at law part is not good enough. If you're committing crimes. All right. Uh, so my guess again, uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, like attorney William, attorney general William Barr is not at the top of the list of targets. Uh, the pressing issue is Donald, uh, Trump. So that leads me to this question. Um, First of all, this is a question that uh, many people have asked on the show, and I, I, I don't know if I've seen a definitive answer. If the House votes to impeach a, uh, uh, Donald Trump and essentially indicting him, is Mitch McConnell required to hold a trial in the Senate, or can he just ignore the uh, articles of impeachment? Well, there is a Senate rule that governs the process that occurs after they get an impeachment referral from the House. Senate rules, some of them, are subject to, uh, they, they can't be changed unless you actually have a two-thirds majority, unless you have 67 votes. Mm-hmm. He actually himself, Mitch McConnell, has admitted that this is one of those rules that can't be changed without a two-thirds majority. So he's admitting that he would be obligated to start the process of holding a trial in the Senate. Mm-hmm. However... Anytime something like that comes out of his mouth, I am immediately concerned that there's something, there's some other potential (laughs) outcome because he wouldn't just say that unless he had a plan. And I don't believe other than maybe for political expediency, you know, whenever he decides that he has to jettison Trump to protect his majority, Mm -hmm. which could happen. uh, Otherwise he's going to continue to act in the service of this administration. So the concern would be, can he come up with some procedural outcome where they vote on a partisan basis on some sort of motion to dismiss the case completely? Wow. Before actually putting on any evidence, before allowing the Democrats to, as they would probably characterize it, parade all this nefarious and, and dubious evidence before them. Uh, Cause we already know, you know, they're, they're the ones yelling about being pre-ju- prejudging things, but they already know it's an insufficient case as a matter of law. And so we're just going to say this be, is dismissed. That would be the ultimate F you to Congress. That would be it's the ultimate F to the Constitution. That would be really putting one man above the law. And then you ask, like, for what? I mean, they already got a bunch of judges. Seriously, for what at this point? Um, Would that be appealable? In other words, if the Senate were to, let's just play this out a little bit. Uh, if and, and it could come down to this. Jim, we could be having this conversation uh, in January. Ugh. If it come, if the, um, if, if McConnell does that, if he passes on a party line vote, as you're suggesting, he, he might be considering uh, a, a motion that dismisses the case that has, just been uh that the congress has just voted um to send to the senate if he does Mm -hmm. that can the can the democrats in the house then appeal that decision to the courts i don't think there's any uh legal mechanism to do that 
So it's just done. I think so. Impeachment is written into the Constitution. It's art. It's in Article One. Um, I don't believe that there is any connection between that and having the Supreme Court rule on anything about it, other than the the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court would be presiding over the hearing, the actual trial in the Senate. That's provided yes. for, and yeah. that's that's what happens. Um, but. I, if because I don't know who would even move for that, like is the House the litigant and they're the ones asking for the relief? I don't think that's contemplated in Marbury versus Madison. That's that's the problem. All right, so let's say a grand jury in Cook County indicts so and so for some crime, and the uh, state's attorney brings the case to the court, and the judge is like Mitch McConnell. Does he have the right just to say I don't like this case? I'm dismissing it because I think it's a bogus case. Or do they have to try a case at Cook County? Can you just do what the... Can any old judge in America do well, what Mitch McConnell's about to do? Or the, perhaps? The, I mean, the, the problem with that analogy... To answer your question, no. If, if it, Well, if a case is found to be insufficient as a matter of law on the prosecution side of a criminal case, then the state's attorney can appeal that decision. You know, state's attorneys cannot appeal jury acquittals. That's like... Jeopardy's already attached and game over. But if it's insufficient as a matter of law, that can go up on appeal. That that happens you know, all the time because of like uh, motions to suppress or something like that. They can appeal that question because they wouldn't have a case otherwise. So they go up on appeal, figure out whether or not they can get the bloody sock into evidence. Yeah. And if the appellate court says, no, this shouldn't have been dismissed, then you go have the trial or the guy pleads at that point. But here, McConnell's not the judge. He's the majority leader. So he can whip his caucus into organizing the 53 votes that he's got. It is a majority and a legislative body, you know, other than when they make law, I don't think they're, I think even at the federal level, there are not subject to any judicial review for those actions. You know, this is one of those complicated things where you're trying to figure out the interplay between the three main branches of government um, and a situation that I think, if that's how it played out. I think everybody would sit back and you'd have constitutional scholars uh, musing about the fact that that did not get contemplated at the Second Continental Congress because, I, I mean, and, and maybe because nobody figured that a uh, a, ma- a majority leader in one of the in the Senate mm-hmm. would be that complicit with with somebody who, you know. Found, so the guys who were in that room in Philadelphia trying to come up with how do we put a check on presidential power had to be thinking. At a minimum, once the House of Representatives, which presumably has some representation of the people's voice, has voted articles of impeachment out, hung their necks out, because obviously that's a pretty big deal. If that blows back on them, they're all going to lose their seats, um, that it would just sort of die somehow. Like, how could there not be enough public sentiment behind that? I think these guys were political theorists. Well, what they didn't foresee was the rise of Fox TV. That's the big release valve. Yep. Mass media. Mass media. And the fact, and this is where Donald Trump, this is which is radically different than what I lived through with Watergate. Uh, Donald Trump is in a way that Richard Nixon never did, just showing his utter disdain for, and, uh, for all that the Democrats do. 
Like you can't beat me because ultimately I control the I control the Senate. The Electoral College is in my advantage as well. Mm -hmm. So I could even if you destroy me at the polls uh, in a popular vote, I could still be reelected by virtue of this crazy system we have, which has baked in this advantage for me. So I'll do whatever I want, even it defies uh, all precedent and. so then the issue becomes, let's say we follow this uh, and you're saying that. So I always ask you, is it legal? So apparently it looks as though it would be legal for McConnell uh, to have a quick uh, up or down vote on whether they should could, uh, proceed with the trial. If they vote no and there's no recourse, what do you think the public, how do you think the public will respond? Well, there's two things. One thing I'll say before we get to the public is I don't know if that'll work. I mean, you have questions about whether or not they could, there's a filibuster problem there. I mean, is that, is it, does it actually work in the Senate? What like, do you mean the filibuster problem? Well, I mean, they, yes, they can say they have a majority, but what does, do the 47 Democrats say, but wait, you don't have 60 votes for this. You don't have 67 votes for this. You can't just dismiss this. I don't know how that actually plays out. It would be all out war. A parliamentary war. Yeah. In the Senate. Yes. Yeah. You'd, you'd have the esoteric <laughs> parliamentarian people on, on cable news trying to explain yeah, with the Roberts whatever. rules of order. Yes. Yeah. And I, and, and whatever's in the Senate rules, which I've never reviewed just to like a, a serious degree. I, by the I don't way, know Jim is in there. revealed to me before the show, we were chatting and he's on a, what is the zoning board in your, in your suburb where you live? Planning and zoning. Planning and zoning. In Park Ridge. You better learn Roberts rules of orders than you're in the zoning <laughs> committee. <laughs> I, I, I'm not as brushed up as I should be, but yeah. yes. But right. anyway, so uh, I'll continue. I cut you off. Go ahead. So, yeah, so I, you know, the Senate rules, the ones I was referring to earlier that have this, apparently have this rule, because um, they adopt them every time there's a new Senate, and most of them just get rolled over mm-hmm. for how they respond to a referral from the House. There's going to be other stuff in there, and I'm not sure what else is in there. I'm sure they're publicly available if you wanted to reference them. But as far as the public goes, I mean, look, when similar to the baked in advantage that a Republican minority in this country, which is fundamentally what it is. Like at best, Democrats have at least a plurality, maybe a majority, but there's no doubt that Demo- that Republicans, died in the wool Republicans represent at best 35% of the country as voters, maybe 40 on a good day. Um, many of the states where these Republican 40, 53 senators come from are states where they're, they might have 60%, 70% on their side every single day. Even if they lose some in the middle, they just don't care. And the odds of, you know, no matter how bad they are, they have, again, with the help of, of a, a news apparatus that demonizes Democrats and anybody with a liberal idea in their heads every single day yeah. of the week, um, they know that even if they are despised, they can still continue to demonize the other guy and maybe squeak out a 49% to 47% victory and hold on to their seat. So at least 40, 40 to 45 Republican seats are safe just the way the demographics are in this country now. Yeah. Does that mean John Cornyn is, gets into play along with the guy, Cory Gardner in Colorado, Susan Collins? I mean, they would probably lose their 50 seats. They might come out 50-50. And if Trump loses the election, okay, you have enough for a bare majority in, in things. But I think it's a gamble that McConnell is weighing even at this moment. Well, that's uh, that's the, we call, I call it the Meredith Shiner uh, theory. She is a guest on the show. She's a political reporter for many years in Washington. She was anyway. Now she's in public relations. She comes on the show and she talks about the wheeling and dealing in Washington. And uh, the position she has stated very articulately is that Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell will make a decision. 
and he will decide uh, whether Donald Trump saving Donald Trump's neck will cost him the Senate. If he comes to that conclusion that to uh, protect Donald Trump, he'll lose the Senate. He's going to throw Donald Trump under a bus because one number one thing in his mind is holding on to that Senate. Right. Agreed. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that absolutely is part of the calculus for how he approaches the beginning, middle or end of that process or what happens afterwards, or if he tries to sit on it in some fashion, if he realizes that it's going south because too much pressure is on his people, um, there are at least three majorly vulnerable senators right now. But then, you know, what happens in Alabama? They could gain back a seat there. So he's doing all that math. Well, uh, and I was thinking of Alabama because Alabama is part of the math. If, if you assume that in a red state, there's absolutely nothing uh, that could stop the Republicans from winning. I'll just say, well, look at Alabama. Right. They tried to get a man, uh, Roy Moore, uh, who a few years back had been prowling the malls of Alabama, suburban Alabama, looking for underage uh, girls uh, that he could date. Mm. And that was unacceptable to a majority of the voters in Alabama. How about that? And he was defeated. Now he's He's running again. I don't he know if you know. Again. He's running no, again. I, I hope they nominate him again. It'd be a gift. Uh, it would certainly increase Doug Jones' chances. Yeah, so it would increase his chances. So it's it's not, I think Mitch McConnell has to put that in the back of his mind, too. There are limits, apparently. But the other point, and I'll leave with this, that uh, that you mentioned that's a really important one, uh, is uh, the media's role in all this. And I read an article today in a paper or that uh, the Trump has a commanding lead over the Democrats in money raised at this stage of the campaign, and he's plowing it uh, into Internet uh, advertising. I don't know if you saw that. And that is just spreading the propaganda Mm -hmm. just the way you just so uh, the way you put it, uh, Jim, just spreading it demonizing the opposition, trivializing the case against them, uh, throwing out all kinds of counter accusations, whether they're warranted or not, uh, just sort of like as much as he can, muddying the water uh, with the notion that he can win just enough voters in key swing states to get reelected. Well, that's why when they announced their strategy for the 2020 campaign, they put Brad Parscale in charge of it. He's he's their digital guy. He's their guy who was in charge of the, I think he was deputy in charge of or maybe completely in charge of the strategy online along with Jared Kushner. Um, so that's what they fundamentally understand. And as, you know, I think we, pro- I assume somewhere along the way we've talked about this and I know you've probably echoed this on your show. The only world in which Donald Trump can win a person like Donald Trump, and maybe there's no other persons like him, so this may be a sui generis category. It may be just him. The only world in which he could win an election, particularly for such an important position as president of the United States, is a world where everything looks bleak and everybody else is brought down. Even the great, you know, the greatest hero Democrat you could think of, whatever they would do, even if it's false, to denigrate them, to demonize them bring up the dumbest story from when they were in high school to make them seem like a bad person. Only He can only succeed at anything. I'm including business, I'm including his whole life, by bringing everybody else down to his level because that's just who he is. He doesn't try to appeal to anyone because he doesn't care what you think. He desperately needs to control everything around him, but he feels like he can do it without anybody's consent. So that's why, yeah, absolutely, having the help of, of the Fox Network as well as spreading just garbage, mm-hmm. toxic, toxic garbage across the internet is going to be fundamental to this. So 
um, it's a huge uphill battle. Yeah. Uh, and, and it would help, you know, if they can start with impeachment and try to get the message out and, and have that 15, 20 percent of the country who's, who considers themselves independent to finally say, OK, this is absurd. Yeah. And the Constitution really is at stake. Well, I I believe uh, I win or lose on an impeachment battle and even win or lose in the election. I, I think it's just imperative for the Democrats to take this stand here. Like I said, Donald Trump is just got the two middle fingers flying in the air. Mm -hmm. I could do whatever I want. He bragged about it. He said I could kill somebody at Fifth Avenue and get away with it. And uh, he's apparently trying to prove his case. He hasn't gone as far as murder, but uh, uh, he's just... He's just out there in the open about his just utter, like, he feels he is above it all. He's so. been, he's spent the day shooting people at Fifth Avenue, you know, proverbially, and he's yelling about it and saying, look at me, I'm shooting people on Fifth Avenue. And he's daring anybody to do about do it, anything. do something about yeah, it. Yeah, so the Democrats have to do something about it. And I have to believe, I, I'm going to say this in closing, Jim, I say this all the time. Everybody said, Ben, you're wrong. I have to believe that a majority of voters in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan are not going to go with him on this. Hey, throw Arizona in there. There's a, there's a long list of states that hopefully he's he's maybe finally have gotten fed up. Fed up. Well, I, I use those three because if they flip, sure. uh, there goes the election. Uh, Jim Coogan, we're going to bring you back, of course. Love doing this. How is this legal, Jim Coogan, uh, with <laughs> Dwyer and Coogan, our legal expert on the Ben Jarofsky Show? Jim, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you very it. much, Ben. And so it goes. Another bonus episode on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Take care, everybody.